right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 269. With that number, we're going to give a shout out to Mallory Pugh, who earned her first cap for the senior national team at the age of just 17 years and 269 days. Since that game nearly four years ago, back in January 2016, 25 more players have earned their first caps for the United States, including two last weekend under new coach Vladko Anonofsky. So let's give a shout out as well to Midge Purse and Alana Cook. So two chats this week. First with Chris Hockman, my go-to pal for Aussie soccer coverage. We talked about the Matildas' recent home games versus Chile, the upcoming W League season, Sam Kerr's move abroad, and much, much more. And then I spoke with coaching educator and former coach, Janae Bukloski. She is the coaching educator for both South Texas and U.S. soccer. Plus, she recently became head coach of the St. Kitts and Nevis national team. They made history last month qualifying for the final round of CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. Janae and I talked about um, what coaching that tournament was like, but also what it's like to be a coaching educator when more often than not, she's the only woman in the room. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Chris Hockman, my longtime Australian soccer Woso nerd pal. I think that's the best way to to describe you, Chris, um, you've, you've been all over the map when it comes to where you've been living in the U.S., but one thing has remained constant, of course, your passion for following and documenting the Australian women's national team, much like I've documented uh, the U.S. women's team. So it's it's so great to have someone like you to reach out to and go, hey, can you check this stat for me the last time <laughs> USA played Australia? Yeah, I don't, I don't think my my database isn't quite as uh, as robust as yours, but it's getting there. So I'm uh, I'm flattered. But yeah, I, I you know, I'm <laughs> trying to give the uh, trying to give the women the uh, the history and the stats and everything that the the men have been afforded for some time. And, and know, there's so many great storylines right now with the Matildas. Um, so let let's start with. Uh, Two games against Chile, one that kicks off in the middle of tonight, which, of course, we can't talk about because it hasn't happened yet. But they played a few days ago, record-setting crowd, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, a couple things played into that crowd. Obviously, it's the first time the Matildas have played at home in a while, so that that always helps get a crowd. Yeah. It's a, uh, for those not aware, a brand-new stadium in western suburbs of Sydney. Um, nice. Which you know we talked last time we talked I was out for the W League Grand Final. Um, wasn't even built when I was out there, so it really is a, a brand new stadium. You know, just took the wrapper off. Um, it's where Western Sydney Wanderers play. So the men's team plays there all the time. The uh, the women's team will play there a lot, uh, but won't play every single game there. Um, but I, I think that helped as well. You know, people had been very excited to see that stadium. I know a lot of my friends hadn't had a chance to see the stadium yet. And so went to the Matildas game. Yes, to support the Matildas, but also, uh, you know, I mean, we, we were both at the BBVA stadium opening in Houston and right. that was a great event. And so, you know, you want to see this new stadium and, and uh, having an event like the Matildas playing their first home game since the World Cup was a... Uh, was a great opportunity for that, and and it led to a, a record crowd. It's the biggest standalone Matildas crowd. They've, for 
the record, there's been slightly bigger crowds um, happened at the uh, 2000 Olympics, but those were all double headers. So right. They don't. Right. Count. Yeah. And usually the big tournaments always get, you know, more more crowds anyway. It's much exactly. like, you know, the U.S. women set a, a record this summer for biggest standalone crowd, you know, and friendly, because obviously you can go back to the World Cup final in 1999, more than 90,000 people. But one, it's a doubleheader. And two, it was the World Cup final. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, World Cup final doesn't apples, really count. Yeah, apples to apples to oranges. Um, and, and this series is a two-game series against Chile. They won the first game 2-1, two goals from, from Sam Kerr. Um, great way for her to kind of, I would say, rebound from what we know is a very frustrating uh, NWSL championship game against uh, North Carolina, um, and she's just continuing to roll with with the goal scoring. It, it's it's funny to tell people it's like yeah, she's the all time leading scorer for NWSL, all time leading scorer for Australia w, w League, not yet all time leading scorer for the Australian national team. Um, but I'm th- thinking that'll happen eventually, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bound to happen, partly because these days the Matildas play a lot more games than they used to. Right. Um, partly, partly thanks to being in Asia, and now partly, I think, thanks to being part of that. Maybe not the top, top tier of national teams, but certainly that tier just below. Um, you know, they've been ranked in the top 10 for a lot of the, the previous few years. So right. that helps get more games. You get bigger games, you get bigger opponents, and you play more and that's part of why they are a better team now because they're playing a lot more. Right. And so many of those players playing in NWSL, um, you know, you, you could have had an entire starting lineup of Australians from NWSL playing in the world cup this summer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, the one great benefit, the way the NWSL and W league seasons work is it's possible to play both. Um, yeah, And then, of course, the, the Matildas in the previous, we're going to talk about the new CBA, uh, but the previous CBA, one of the things that got dropped was a requirement to play in the W League, which freed up players like Emily Van Egmond to play uh, exclusively overseas. Um, not everybody takes them up on that, but I think that has been a thing that has helped development because now players aren't tethered to the W League. They can play it and almost all of them do, but uh, they don't have to play the W League and can enjoy a break after the NWSL. Well, and and that's such an interesting point because it mirrors, I think, the shift that we're starting to see with NWSL where, you know, when the league started, the U.S. national team players, it was made pretty clear that hey, if you want to be considered for the national team, you need to be playing in NWSL. You know? Um, yeah, yeah. And, 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 then of and course, now I think Australia. Post- Post second World Cup title, you know, and and a coaching change and a, and a new CBA, I, I think we're going to see more and more flexibility. So you know, the, the players have more freedom to move around, which I think is going to make uh, uh, we're going to be going through a, a very interesting transition. As you know, we're seeing NWSL grow. I'm seeing calls for W League to expand, and I think they've been great partner leagues for several years in terms of that players can play both, but we've got to get to the point where NWSL has a longer season. And I would think a two, the W league to have a longer season and that they both end up being kind of standalone leagues. Yeah. I mean, the Australian legend Tom Samani um, 
you know, that was that was a big part of why the W League was created. Before the W League, the Australian Women's Championship was basically a, a two week tournament at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. Um, right. And we wondered and we wondered why we weren't doing well in the World Cup. Um Tom Zamani pushed for a full home and away national season and um yeah, and it and that's why we have the W League now. Um it was at the right time. I think Tom saw the uh the opportunity there was a complete revamp of a of Australia of football in Australia because of the the issues that were there in the old days where back when the back when it was soccer Australia and not the FFA and uh-huh. um, saw that opportunity to say well if we're going to revamp men's soccer let's revamp women's as well and presented the opportunity and took it and and now you know the link with the A League I think has been a tremendous boost and not every A League team of course has a W League team. Uh, but that's uh, we talked about expansion. The Central Coast Mariners, which uh, full disclosure is my team, are <laughs> um, you know working for you know got rid of a W League team partly because um, the club was broke and wasn't getting the funding from the state association, and um, the stadium they have didn't have four change rooms, so couldn't host double headers. Um, now they've renovated the stadium. They spent all this money to renovate the stadium and then got denied a W League license, which left a lot of people in Gosford frustrated. Um, so hopefully, um, now that there's a lot of pressure to expand the league, um, not just from fans, but I think also from broadcasters, uh, hopefully we'll see the Central Coast Mariners back in the W League. Of course, uh, you know, I think notably Kaya Simon played for the Central Coast Mariners. Uh, they They very nearly won a... W League title went all the way to the last game of the season against Sydney FC and got beat uh, by Sydney FC to win to get Sydney FC the league title. So um, you know it, they'd be an exciting addition. Any team, I think, would be great. I, my opinion is who every A League team else, should have a um, W League team. So who else would you see expansion from? I think. I mean, we've got now. Um, there's a new A League team, Western United. Um, they're out of the western suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, well, mm-hmm. they're actually out of Geelong right now, but anyway. Um, but they will be moving to the western suburbs of Melbourne when they have a stadium. Um, so I would like to see them have a team. Uh, and then I think there's a lot of smaller markets that are never going to be a an A-League market that I think could handle a, a W-League team. You know, the, the example we have right now is Canberra. I don't know if Canberra is going to get an A-League team anytime soon. Uh, but can definitely support a W League team and has a Canberra has a long history of it. And I think there are towns like that uh, in Australia that could handle that and even, you know, um, use the W League as a way to scope out potential cities. Not that that's how we should use it, but um, have this opportunity there for teams to say, okay, well, maybe you're not ready for the A League, but come show us you can build something and be successful. And, uh, and then we'll talk about it. So, you know, I think there's, there's cities that the A-League left, like the Gold Coast, like North Queensland, um, that I think could support. You know, we, we see Matildas come from North Queensland. So I think it'd be great to see a team up there and, you know, lots of places where there aren't teams, I think, could do and it. And then but I think the, the next season kicks off later this week. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, I know some of the games will be televised live in, live in Australia. I'm hoping that, you know, we'll be able to catch some of them here in the States. Yeah, I, I believe since the, uh, as part of the CBA, we're going to talk about, I believe the licensing deal, the broadcast deal that ESPN Plus has for the A-League 
extends to the W link, but I don't know 100% if that's the case. But uh, they have in the past done it. So back before ESPN Plus, they they when they had the rights to Australia, they they also aired the W League on ESPN Three. So. Yeah. And I was able to watch a lot continue. last year via the 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 app, the the FFA app yeah. was was yeah, pretty the handy. App. And then um, I know ABC in Australia, the broadcaster, just announced that they are stopping geoblocking of a lot of things. So the W League may Yay. be part of that. Yay! Fingers sure, crossed. Maybe. Well, let, well, let's get to the, the the meat of the discussion, which of course is the landmark agreement or you know CBA discussion. Where I, I love that the the PFA, so that's the Professional Footballers of Australia, so that's the men and women's national team negotiating as one with you know the federation and basically agreeing to equal pay in basically all but one area, right? Yeah, the the deal is uh, essentially equality across the board. So uh, the Matildas have gone to great lengths in all their media appearances to say this would not have happened without the Socceroos getting on board. Um, it's it's the, the second time the PFA has negotiated the agreement, um, but it's the first time they negotiated everything as a group. So the the agreement with the PFA was not a separate Matildas contract and a separate Socceroos contract. It was one collective bargaining agreement for the whole national team setup. So um, the women and the men are now equalised, um, which is going to be a very convoluted system to make that happen because, as we all know, um, the structure of men's and women's football is not equal. And so um, there's going to be spreadsheets and calculations that's going to be done by the PFA. Um, so they're taking that on. Um, that's part of their responsibility as the union of of players in Australia. Um, so they're going to take that on uh, and keep that in track. So they're going to have a spreadsheet. And at the end of the financial year, so in Australia, the financial year runs from July to June. Uh, mm-hmm. They'll have uh, everything equaled so that the highest paid man isn't paid any more than the highest paid woman. Um, so it'll work out that Sam Kerr is earning as much as whoever the highest paid soccer rule is, and I don't know who that would be right now. But, uh, and so that that's factoring in um, pay for playing, pay for any bonuses outside of World Cup bonuses, and, I mean, does that factor in merchandise, or, or yeah, so you know, what are some of the details that you can share? Merch will be split 50-50, um, the big one was sponsorship. Uh, sponsorship will be, you're now not buying a Socceroos or Matilda sponsorship at two different price points. You're buying a national team sponsorship and your money's being divided between the two. Um, what was interesting in discussion since then is people talking about how, like the PFA speaking about how part of this was because sponsors wanted them to do it. Um, because for sponsors, they've been paying men and women the same for a very long time because it would be illegal to not. Um, right. And so they said, well, we're paying our women the same as we pay our men. Why aren't you doing it? Um, and that kind of puts <laughs> some pressure on the SFA to realize that things weren't fair. There's still going to be some inequalities there, um, but not due to any negligence on the SFA's part. So um, you signposted it earlier, the, the, um, the bonuses for prize money won't be the same 
Um, it will be the same technically. So the bonus percentage will be the same. Men and women will get paid the same percentage of the prize money. Um, right. For any competitions won, the stages, the staggered prize money thing, they'll get the same percentage. But because the prize money for women's gay for women's tournaments is so much less than men's tournaments, um, the women will receive less than men, but not on a percentage basis, just on pure cash money basis, they'll receive much less. And so, I can understand that because it's it's not like the Australian Federation can control what FIFA is handing out for for bonuses, you know, or what the Asian confederation is handing yeah. out for bonuses so i'm sure they can help put pressure on that and and i think it's yeah, worth noting that when thing. these bonuses come out they're not sent directly to players you know when the u.s women won the world cup it's u.s soccer that receives a bonus check you know when um France won last summer the Men's World Cup. It's the French Federation that receives the bonus check, and then it's dependent on whatever agreement you have with your players, how much they get. So, you know, ostensibly, a federation could say, yeah, the men aren't going to make, aren't going to get any more than the women can get. But if you do that based on the pure numbers, yeah, it's it's really screwy. So, you know, for now, like a percentage is probably the most equal way you can you can put it, but yeah. you know, I, I'd like to see the federations and the confederations put more pressure on FIFA. Just like, you know, it's not like you don't have the money and you certainly haven't been trying to monetize so many aspects of this tournament, you know, so come on, let's do it. Yeah. I think that that's the hope that I think the FFA has from this is that it puts pressure on the AFC and FIFA to say, okay, like the WTA can do it. The, the Grand Slam tennis tournaments play now all pay men and women equally. Um, we just saw an Australian win the biggest prize in tennis um, ever at the women's end of year tournament, Ash Barty. So it's, um, you know, I think part of that, you know, a lot of the big people in Australian sport right now are all women, you know, apart from men. Um, I think all the big stars in Australian sport right now are women. And I think that's put women's sport on people's minds, not just the Matildas, but all women's sport and things like this have, you know, led to this equality movement that we've seen. And, you know, we obviously see it here in the States, but in Australia as well, we're seeing this movement that I think is getting there. And for, for all things, everything the FFA can control is going to be equal. I think there's the one mind blowing part of the CBA for me is that the, the big part that's easily to, missed is the Matildas now get business class flights for I, I was uh, I was just about games. to bring that up that that it does get overlooked a lot, but that in a way is even more significant to me because that affects you every game, every time you travel. There's no reason that both teams shouldn't be treated the same in terms of, you know, their travel arrangements, what access they have in terms of training resources, trainers, dietitian, what are that? It's like that should be the same across the board. And that's huge, especially for Australia, when you consider how much they have to travel and how far they have to travel for their international games, right? Like yeah, you look at the U.S. Okay. women, they play so much at home. Their travel is you know, predominantly domestic within the, you know, continental U.S. Australia, they're all over the globe. 
Yeah, I think you look at Australia's gotten off to a lot of slow starts in tournaments. And I don't want to say it's exclusively because they've been flying economy class to France or Canada, but it, it can't hurt to uh There's to no guarantee that they've gotten seat. it. Yeah, they haven't had a guarantee. That's true. They may have flown it in the past. But my understanding is that uh, at the very least, not every player got a business class seat uh, in previous iterations. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be discrepancies. You know, we've had, um, you know, one of the, the greatest moments in Australian football history that we're about to hit the the anniversary of when the Socceroos qualified for their first World Cup in in 32 years, November 16th, 2005. Uh, uh-huh. They, they got I love a that you have down to the date. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I was there. So, it was a big <laughs> moment. Uh, but uh, they, uh, Qantas gave them a plane to fly from Uruguay to Sydney. Um, wow. I don't know if Qantas would. Maybe they would now. Maybe in today's climate, they might. Uh, but in 2005, I don't think they would have done the same thing for the Matildas where they ripped out all the seats and put beds down and all of that. Wow. And, you know, and we saw in that game that made the difference. You know, the Uruguay yeah. had to fly economy class and, um, and Australia flew on a private jet. And, that, and that's huge when you think of and have how, how global soccer is now. Like I think back to the 2016 Olympics and it was the Nigeria men's U23 team that like arrived less than 24 hours before kickoff of their first game because of all the, the travel snafus they had. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously playing business class isn't going to make them immune to the, the hassles of travel is still going to be there. And like you said, especially yeah. for Australia, it's so far away. There's still going to be difficulties involved. That's why, winning the World Cup hosting bid is so important Um, because even if it's like, it's pretty obvious it's going to be an Asian country, but even if it's an Asian country, it's still going to be a long flight for Australia, wherever it's hosted. Right. Uh, If it's not Australia. So winning that bid is, is so vital for the Aussie team and gives them a significantly better chance of doing well in the tournament um, than they otherwise would have. But yeah, it doesn't guarantee um, obviously, you can miss connections and you can't control that. Your baggage can go missing. We saw in the in the A-League, actually, a team had to play in their training kit uh, two weeks ago because the airline lost their, lost their jerseys. So, um, yeah, just, just because you're flying a, in more comfort doesn't make you immune from those hassles, and we could still see those things happen, but it decreases the chance for sure. Well, and, and it, it sets the tone, um, sets the precedent of – whatever the men get, the women should get that it's like, it shouldn't be dependent on, well, this one's the better team. So they should get it. Or this one makes more money. They should get it. It's like, no, that's infrastructure. That's, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and if it was based on who the better team was only, only one Australian senior team has won a knockout game at the world cup. So, right. Um, right. And it's not the Socceroos. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think it's, and the Matildas is, you know, much like in the U S though not as successful as the U S the, the yeah. women's team has been significantly better than the men's team, except for maybe uh, 2005, 2006. Yeah, um, and I feel I feel that there's so many similarities in part because the the soccer is just like the U.S. men. It's like they can make more money. I mean, as the teams, not the, the individual players, they can make more money because when they bring on 
um, you know, visiting teams like Brazil or Argentina or something like that, you know, there's a fan base that wants to watch that in Australia and in the U S you know, and, and you know that if they travel for games that they're getting, um, you know, an appearance fee where, you know, we don't really see that in, in women's teams yet. So it's, it's like there's right, yeah. more money to be made, but yeah, you've got to like, yeah, I think you have to strip away. Well, who's the better team or who makes more money, but just like, no, these are our national teams and you treat them the same. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that as well at the lower levels, like the youth teams, I think are being treated with more equality now and, and more respect. And I think that's resulted in, like, not just the quality between the boys and the girls youth teams, but they're treated more like the senior teams are treated and they, they're given the, the treatment that those teams get. And I think the benefits of that are shown by the uh, the – Joey's and the young Socceroos qualifying for the World Cup for the first time in forever, and the uh, the young Matildas having better performances lately. I think that's been a result of a, a more professional environment for the youth teams, which Australia hasn't really had a lot of. Um, challenge for the the girls' youth teams is there's not really a national league for the girls to play in like there is for the boys. But maybe one day we'll see that happen. Um, like the National Youth League for the boys came out of the A League. Maybe we'll see a girls' National Youth League come out of the W League. And what do you think is going to happen, Chris, with uh, Sam Kerr not playing in W League this season? And, of course, we recently heard the news that she doesn't plan to return to to NWSL. So what does that mean first for the league, for W League, and then for, for Kerr herself? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, they've lost their biggest marketing tool, obviously. Um, you know, when you have, uh, I'm going to say best player in the world, even though I don't think 2019 was uh, her best year at all. Um, you know, she's undeniably one of the best players in the world, um, despite right. FIFA consistently leaving her out of their awards. Um, she's, you know, anybody who knows anything about women's soccer knows that Sam Kerr is among the best players in the world. And, and, Australia hasn't really had that. You know, we don't often have players that light up the world. Um, you know, at the men's side, you had Kuehl and Viduka for a while, but even then they weren't anywhere near the level Sam Kerr is globally. So um, to have a style like that and not have her play for the league is definitely a big marketing loss. Um, but I think it's a loss the W League can bear right now. Um, how did that happen last year? I don't know. I think it would have been really bad for the W League. It makes me phenomenally happy I got to see the W League Grand Final last year because she played for Perth in the W League right. Grand Final so and scored a goal. So, you know, I think um, it's it's definitely a loss for the league, but it may be a gain for the team, for the, uh, for the Matildas, because she's going to go off and get more experience and learn a different style of playing, and, and it's not going to hurt her paycheck either. So... Um, which is a you know the, any any soccer player men man or woman um, only has a limited time to make the money they're going to make in their career and and for women especially there's so few opportunities to to take advantage of to to make money that you can retire on um, you can't blame her for taking the chance. Well, and I also think it's it's the next step of development for her, right? She spent her entire pro career in W League and WSL playing, you know, the same players over and over when you think about it. Um, 
I, I think to be exposed to a different style of play, um, you know, a different core of players uh, to have the opportunity to play in UEFA Champions League. Um, I, I think that's just going to raise her game um, and hopefully bring the accolades that we all know she deserves. Yeah, she's always wanted to play in Europe, you know, and and we we talk a lot and I rant about it constantly about every November, October uh, that Sam Kerr has been snubbed again. I wasn't as angry about it this year because it's hard to argue with a Rapina uh, in 2019. But, uh, you know, she, she wasn't on the FIFA Best 11 somehow. Right, um, right. You know, she's consistently snubbed and... Um, you know, the argument, if you look at the Men's World Cup trophy, Australia is in the armpit of the uh, of the <laughs> god that's holding up the world. Um, the joke's yeah. always been that Australia is the armpit of FIFA. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, she gets snubbed. And obviously there's a lot to say about how the voting is done for those awards. They go for right. these records, like Marta won so many times, partly because the voters just go, Marta, I know who that is. Right. Um, and that was and, definitely and, the era before we had streaming, so you didn't even have an opportunity yeah. to know exactly, others. Yeah. And it's not, yeah, exactly. It's not entirely their fault, and I think Marta herself acknowledges that. And yeah, you know, obviously she's grateful to have won the awards, but I think. And then sometimes I, I, I also know it's uh, related sometimes to how the nominating is done, uh, because I, I had a friend who was asked uh, last year by Football France to, you know, vote for the women's thing, and he wanted to vote for someone. He wanted to vote for U.S. national teamer who wasn't on the list. And you yeah, know, he's like, I'd yeah. like to vote for this player. And they're like, well, you vote for one of these 10 or we don't have to have you as a voter. Yeah, it's challenging. I think for her to get these individual accolades, yeah, as much as it sounds ridiculous, because I think the NWSL is probably the the best league in the world, um, right. as much as the English Super League has closed that gap. Um, it's ridiculous to say that, Sam Kerr needs to play in the second best league in the world. But but I just think it's like to play to play a different style and to play against different players and maybe to move out of your comfort zone. You know, like I I, I think of the same as Crystal Dunn going over to Chelsea for a season. When we saw, uh, to use an Australian example, I'm going to drop a name again, Emily Van Avlon spending a couple of years in Europe, I think helped her career phenomenally. And, and right. she came back a better player. I think Sam Kerr's going to do the same. And this is her last chance to do it. Like, let's be honest. She's, you know, she's not the the kid she was when she first burst, in the, burst onto the scene at the, at the previous World Cup in, in right. 2016. She's, you know, she's four years older now and, She's maybe got, if she's lucky, two more World Cups. Right. She's very lucky. Yeah. Um, this is the this is the perfect time to do it, especially when okay, you've 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 collected all the NWSL hardware you can, except for that one team trophy that we know she really wants. You know, you you've done everything in W League. It's it's like yeah, give her some some new territory to conquer. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a challenge for her, and, and it's the perfect time to do it because it's an off year. You know, it's a yes. it's a down year. There's not much because there's always that worry as Australians. But I I don't know if American, at least on the women's side, worry about this as much because they're the world champions and they're a well-established program. Uh, but there's always this worry as an Australian going overseas that 
your club won't release you or will make it difficult. You know, I, I know Aussies that play overseas that have been told, look, you know, if you could not play for Australia in this window, we'd really appreciate it. Um, right. Especially so when you consider that the, the distance of, of, of that travel. And, and I think that, that was a concern for, for us soccer, you know, relative to the national team and why they're like, no, we want, you know, if you want to be considered, you got to be part of NWSL, you know, for, for Americans. And I, I think, think it's a, you were going to start seeing that change. Yeah. I think it's going to be a change across with Like, I think we're going to see on the whole women's football become more like men's football. And we're going to see this international transfer market and, and uh, maybe the old traditional powers of women's, at least the league may become a little less say like not stable in the way of sticking around. I think all the leagues that we have now are safe and are going to be around for a long time, but maybe the, uh, the order of things will be turned up a little bit and the European leagues will become more significant and much like in men's football, you know, we're going to see these changes happen and yeah, we're going to see this, this transfer market that exists in, men's that hasn't existed in women's and and maybe we'll see the payment structures for teams become more like men's where it's an appearance fee instead of, uh, in the case of the Matildas, they get paid a stipend. Um, right. You know, the U.S. women's team are essentially full-time employees of right. USSF. Maybe that will change because there's more money in the game. I don't know. I mean, we saw we saw the um, the change in how well the Matildas did when the pay raise went up the last time, when they were able to stop being um, part-time. You know, they could become full-time players and not have to work in coffee shops or restaurants or grocery stores um, to to make up for everything. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more of that as players become better paid and start to be... You know, women's players become household names not just once every four years, but all year round. I think Sam Kerr right. filled that in Australia, but I don't know. Like, even in America, I don't know if there are many players that get that all-the-time recognition um, rather than just the every four years of the World Cup. You know, uh, well, and also, even, even if they do get, you know, year-round recognition, it might be with the silo of the soccer community that they haven't necessarily broken uh, the barrier to just be generally known. Um, And I think it's going to be interesting too, looking ahead into 2020 with uh, you know, the Olympics always following closely on the heels of the women's world cup. It, it gives a lot of teams that broke through or had, you know, a a lot of newsworthy elements in the world cup year, a chance to keep that storyline going. So, you know, hopefully Kerr's big move and, you know, the new CBA and, you know, setting attendance records at home is, you know, going to add into, um, you know, Australia having, uh, you know, qualifying for the Olympics one and, and having a good tournament. Yeah, of course, the, the qualifying in Asia is not a given. It's so brutal in right. women's Olympic qualifying. Now, bright side, this time around, um, Japan's not a factor because they've already qualified by hosting the Olympics. Right. So, and it doesn't um, look and- like the schedule is as as 
as brutal as it was last time. Yeah, that was that was insane. The uh, the last. (laughs) But that's a discussion for a whole nother time. Um, But Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk everything Aussie soccer, and you know, keep up the the good work following the Matildas. Yeah, of course. I'm glad. I'm glad it's good news. It's not always good news where we have to talk. So I'm grateful that this one was a, a whole bunch of great news. Great, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Janae Bukloski, who among her many titles is head coach of the St. Kitts and Nevis women's national team that just qualified for the final round of CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. But one of the reasons I want to talk to you, Janae, is is less about St. Kitts and Nevis and more about all the work that you've done uh, coaching, more importantly, coaching education and, and maybe some of your thoughts on getting more women as coaches. Yeah, that's a lot to cover. You're right. And I have many hats that I wear. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to do yeah, a three-hour yeah. recording, you know, because... Let's see. Yeah. We might have to do a part A, part B, part C, <laughs> and then and then, and then we can take questions from others. So, no, yes. so I'm really happy to be here, Jen. So thank you for um, taking the time to, to talk to me, for sure. So, um, yeah, uh, where, do you, where do you want to start? How, well, how did you get started um, as a coach and then as a coaching educator? Oh, by accident. Um, complete total accident. I was on my uh, fancy route to law school and, um, everybody was real happy with that in my family because they thought it would be a legitimate profession that would have income. And then, uh, I was, so I was bouncing around. I went to, I played in a division two school in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina called Queens, um, mostly because I wanted to play multiple sports, um, because I, I wanted to. And so I played basketball, uh, soccer and tennis at college. And then uh, I continued to try to play professionally after that. And um, I gravitated to Atlanta to uh, try out for the Atlanta beat in the first, uh, the, the WSA. Nice. And, uh, I, yeah. And so um, good news is I was selected into the roster pool. Bad news was I immediately tore my ankle and uh, <laughs> I ended up being on the reserve team, which d- didn't have a fresh professional contract. And for all set in circumstances was just practice dummies. But um, right. I got the opportunity for the first two years to train against some of the best players in the league. I remember that was when Soon Win was coming back uh, right. from her ACL surgery. And then uh, Charmaine was there. We had um, the, the, you know, of course, we had Cindy. We had great, and we had great players. And so I, they, I got to wave at them uh, from the bench, and then, in the, and then that was that was it. So when I was doing that, uh, I had a friend contact me and say, "This is a long story, uh, so I'll make it short." Say, "Hey, can you come out and help me with my uh, U11 girls team?" And I said, "Sure." <laughs> and then uh, that was the end of that because then you get sucked in. That's how coaching works. You get sucked in, and then they're like, "Oh, hey, we need a coach for this team." And then you go and you meet the players, and they're so nice. And um, they need help and you love soccer. So then I, I got another team and I got another team and I got another team. And then all of a sudden that one uh, volunteering thing became like a full thing, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. And then, and then I realized that uh, I was like, you know what? I think I could do this. Like I, I like it. And there's not very many women out here. And I think that was one of the reasons why that particular DOC and that club really latched onto me. And I, my, career was transitioning away from playing and it just made sense for me to stay connected. So I did. And now it's all I've been doing uh, you know, for the game for a long time is working as a coach. So I've, I've loved it. Very grateful. Now, do your, do your parents ever ask, Hey, when are you going to go to law school? 
I think they've given up on that. Um, but, I, you know, but honestly, though, maybe not. I, I do. My mom does drop hints every once in a while. But I think uh, I think she's finally started to figure out what I do because I, I hear I get messages from other aunts and uncles and they're like, oh, we're following you. And this and that. So I think maybe there's some legitimacy <laughs> to my career choice now. Um, but, you know, because I've worked in I've worked in all sorts of coaching places. I've worked as a youth in the youth game. I've worked as a DOC for a large club. Um, and then I finally got my foot in the door in Georgia as a, a volunteer assistant with Georgia State and then immediately uh-huh. became the assistant for Sue Patberg at Emory University, which is a great D3 program and um, loved working at Emory, loved working for Sue. And then I was able to take that experience and be a, I was a division three head coach here in Texas at a school called Southwestern University. And right. uh, I love that. Yeah, I love that because uh, it let me teach academic courses. I was also in the kinesiology faculty and also coach. So uh, I really liked that role. And then from there, I began to work with South Texas Youth Soccer as the assistant uh, director of coaching. And then uh, I guess it would have been like about a year ago, maybe not quite even a year, I became the um, the technical director um, by myself. So I, I think I'm the only uh, female technical director of any of the state associations in the United States, which is ridiculous to say out loud. There I was going to say, I was gonna say, wow. And yeah, there should wow, be more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if that's, a, I don't know what that means. That means I've outlasted them all like survivor <laughs> or um, I'm not sure. So we'll see. But yeah, so that's now as technical yeah, director, what, what do you do? What's, what's a glimpse of your day to day job? Oh, that's a lot. Um, so, so I'm a technical director. Okay, for, yeah. for, someone, for someone that doesn't play soccer or have kids yeah. playing soccer, what, what would be the two-line description of your job? Yeah, you know, um, when I, it's a great, it's a, it's an awesome opportunity to make an impact. But I think I, I think I recently googled what does a technical director do, and if you <laughs> do that, anybody that's listening, or if you do that, it comes up so, so much because it's like. You know, you have to have an understanding of the technical aspects of the game. Obviously, it's a job title, but so I work with players on the player development side. Mm-hmm. I work with coaches highly in coaching education, but we also I'm also tasked with um, parent education and parent engagement in that process. And then probably most recently, uh, the state technical director is also sort of a club development liaison to make sure that club leadership is doing the right thing that they have good structures and processes in place for their players and their coaches. So it's, it's a big thing. And then to be over the state of South Texas, which geographically goes from El Paso to up to the Austin area, all the way up to the, you know, Louisiana border. So North of Beaumont and then all the way down to McAllen, all the way down South. It's a massive area to cover. Right. So, um, so that's my area, you know, so that's, it's a huge responsibility, but, one of the things that most attracted me to this position is, of course, being from Texas, being able to make an impact in Texas, but being able to influence the game in a positive way on a greater scale. Uh, and that's really what it affords me to do. So I, I love it. It's a great it's a great job. Definitely. Well, and it seems like one of those catch all terms, mm-hmm. kind of like director of soccer operations that colleges yeah. and pro clubs use where it's like that just means everything right <laughs> yeah it can yeah it can yeah and you know so part of my responsibility is to make sure that we're as a state following best practices which allows me the opportunity to work for the U.S. Soccer Federation and coaching education 
and uh, lead courses and then lead workshops and attend workshops and make sure that that information is filtering back to coaches here in South Texas. So that's, that's my goal. So it, it's a, it's a great platform for that for sure. Well, and so as you travel around, um, so are you mostly conducting coaching courses? Yeah, most of the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, just like any other federation, the U.S. soccer provides licensed courses. And so I'm fortunate enough and they, uh, to be able to lead them and teach them. So like right now, I'm here at a seahorse. We're in McAllen, Texas which is supposed uh-huh. to be a balmy 80 degrees, but it's actually in the 30s today. So everybody is <laughs> miserable. So I, I've got to go out to the field tonight and um, for the training sessions that the coaches are running so they can get some feedback and, and they, it's going to be, it, they're gonna, everybody's going to be cold, but it's going to be great. So <laughs> we, will, we will make it through it. So, Well, and, and so, I love the idea that in, in your role, you're, constantly moving around and so you're seeing different soccer communities um you know having an impact on a a local level and you know so i'm sure in the back of your head you're thinking how do i see more women coaches as i as i travel around what can i do to you know get more women coaching Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i mean i am asked that every course to this course that i'm here on for example uh, there are no women in the course, so that's it's that's it's really rare. You know, usually there's maybe one or two, maybe three women that attend the coaching course. But um, from what I've seen, the the more advanced they go up on the pathway, those it's just trickle effect. There's less women. So one of the reasons that I love what I do is, uh, oftentimes I'm the only woman in the room, and I'm the instructor. Like I'm the lead instructor. And so you can imagine the, the dynamics that that has to a room when, and the, you know, they, I, I think what I've seen has been really positive. Most male candidates that are in courses also dislike that ratio. And uh-huh. so the conversation comes up frequently of why are there only men? And like, why are you the only woman and what can we do? And so, it, you know, I don't know that I have the concrete answer, but it makes me feel even more empowered to do what I do to show that it's a possibility. Because to be honest, my, you know, my goal is not to just have more women who are licensed at all levels, but to have more women educators that are doing what I'm doing. And in order to be able to do what I do, you've got to go through the license pathway. You've got to coach in positive environments. You've got to have good mentors. And so, uh, you know, I don't shy away from the conversation. I bring it up in rooms um, and try to, I feel like one of the most effective first steps is realizing that it's a deficiency, making people aware of that and then thinking about how bias internal and explicit works within all realms of this sort of, you know, this world that we live in, the sporting industry that we work in and finding policies that can work to protect women and also um, improve the environment for them. So that's, that's really where I live now is in that space. Well, and then let's switch, let's switch gears and talk about um, your work with the uh, St. Kitts and Nevis national team, because you are, you are part of the U S soccer structure. So, so how did this come about? Yeah, I keep I keep asking them like, "Hey, I'm gonna still have a job, right?" And they and they say, yes. "So one of the one of the fortunate things is is I'm an instructor for U.S. Soccer, but um, and I represent them and I represent them proudly. Um, but it also allowed me to make the connections necessary to 
to be considered for the role with Think Kids and Nevis. And so uh, one of my one of my good friends, one of my mentors, uh, his name is Neil Ellis. He's a CONCACAF instructor. And to give St. Kitts and Nevis a tremendous amount of credit, like this has been in the process for over a year. Um, they are very, very, and I say they, but we too, because I, I represent them, but a very tiny, tiny island. Uh, the population is, incredibly small. You, I guess you could check your statistics, but from what I have learned from the, the, the people in the Federation there, there are less people actually living on the island than there are citizens that are living abroad. There's around, I think, 50,000 people on the island, but don't quote me on that, maybe. Wow. Um, maybe check it. It's tiny, right? So if you think about that in the scheme of the Caribbean, here they were in some room a year ago having a conversation about how they wanted to improve the the environment for women and girls, right? I don't think mm-hmm. that we could fairly say that every country in the Caribbean has, is there yet or has had that conversation. So, right, um, right. They, yeah, which is which is fabulous, right? So, um, they wanted to match the structure and quality of licensing that they provide for their men's and boys national teams on the girls and women's side, and they knew that they didn't have anybody within the island, within the Federation that uh, would have that background. And they, I think they also wanted somebody who could bring, bring best practices to help improve the coaches that are there. Right. So when they approached me about this role, you know, it's, 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 it's like almost like uh, coaching the senior women's team is like the extra stuff, but it, I don't see, I never have intentionally saw like, that's my job. Like I, I don't see myself as being, just the senior women's coach. Um, my job is both as the coach, but also as an advisor to the whole entire program to improve the girls and the women's structure, which means uh, growing marketing, which you obviously take, you taking the time to talk to me helps. So that's that step in the process to just get anything out there about St. Kitts that we can both outside and inside the island, um, improving the coaches, improving the management style, improving the things like, meals and bus planning and scheduling and all of those things that go into high performance, helping with that piece. And then, then lastly, helping with the players, making sure the players are fit, making sure the players know what's expected of them, picking a good roster pool, but making sure that the roster we picked isn't too myopic where it doesn't look at the long term. I mean, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. And just like I said, like for them to even think that this is something that's a priority for them is awesome. Now, they did reach out to me like a long time ago. It has taken quite a long time for everything to get going because I do think sometimes things come up with the men's team and it does divert attention and that. So mm-hmm. I get to, I get to send a lot of text messages all the time and I get to nag, you know, so, so they've kept me so far. So I guess they, they continue <laughs> to do that, but it's just like, Hey, like, Hey, the women's program, remember, remember us like, yeah, we need, we need this too. Like, you know, <laughs> I think so. Well, uh, especially know, uh, following following oh. historic qualifications. So yeah. for the first time ever, we're seeing St. Kitts crazy. and Nevis in the final eight, uh, whether you're talking Olympic or World Cup yeah. qualifying for, for CONCACAF. That's huge. So so tell it me a little great. bit about, about qualifying last month. Yeah, well, um, was, that was crazy. I mean, what a great showing that we had in Trinidad. Nobody expected that. Nobody at no. all. You know. Um, and, uh, I had not even had, I didn't take the player pool. Uh, I, they, I didn't know who was coming in. So I found out about a week and a half before that I was going and went. And then, uh, we were supposed to have 
some training. We had one practice with about half of the squad because travel was uh, here. It was like kind of random. People were coming in from all over the world. And so it was a little confusing. Um, and then we had weather. So we only had one actual practice before we hit the field against the Dominican Republic. And wow. Then, yeah, that's crazy. And they were good. The Dominican Republic is great. I think they're, I would put them on a list to watch the, they're well coached. They play a great attractive style. Um, we had, I, you know, I kind of went to starting lineup that the coach, one of the coaches on the staff had given me and it was, it was a decent lineup, but immediately, like that was my first time. That was basically like, um, the scrimmage for me, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't though, it was an international qualifier, but for me, it was the first time I got to see all of them all on the field all together. Like, that's crazy, you know? And yeah. it was also the first time I got a roster. So then, uh, we had a tie and that was okay. Great. I was, I felt relieved. They were all like, all oh, disappointed, which was a great sign. And then uh, we had, we got really lucky because we had four days before our next match. And in the four days from that first game, I was finally able to, to train, to prepare, get to know the players and where they should be playing as opposed to maybe where they were, you know, and it made a huge difference when we came out, we beat Aruba, I think six to one in the wow. next game, I think. And then, um, and then we played Trinidad and uh, the people, the, the people in St. Kitts viewed Trinidad as a huge rival for them. Um, it's kind of like, you know how like Texas and Texas A&M, like they view each other as rivals, right. Right. but then like Baylor is like the little sister and they, and I love Baylor. So don't Baylor fans don't hate me, but like they also see themselves as rivals, but it's kind of like they're on the outside, like knocking, like, Hey, we hate you too. You know? Um, oh, I totally understand sure that, as, as a rice alum where a, I, I'm, I'm right. definitely like the 11th cousin to that rivalry. Yeah, yeah. You're like, Hey, we don't like you either, either, but we, we <laughs> we're just too focused on A&M, you know? So yeah, I live in Austin. You know, I live in Austin. Um, so for, for Trinidad, I'm not so sure that they knew how angry the St. Kitts players and team was and how much they wanted to beat them. And so it was so easy to prepare the team in the locker room for that game. Like you, <laughs> if I'm like, I could have said nothing and walked out and I think they would have come out ready to, to play. Like there was nothing I needed to do. They, the captains had it, the players, they were like ready. And I don't think Trinidad had any idea what was going to happen. Um, and then it, the game, to be fair, the game did go back and forth. You know, we got up a goal early. It was three to zero, I think going into halftime. And then they scored, became three to one going into the second half. And then, we had to we had to weather some pressure in the second half, but when we got the fourth goal on a counterattack in like the 80th minute or so, it was like the nail in the coffin. Like it was like wow, and the people in the stands, which it was packed, started revolting against the Trinidad team. They were not against the players, but against the I think the, the concept. He nice, yeah, yeah, he was a nice guy. They were just shocked, you know, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that happened, and then uh, and then we and then we played Antigua, and they were just they they had played all their games straight in that humidity, and it didn't have a great deep roster. Lisa Cole, who is their head coach, is a phenomenal coach, and she's going to do great things with that program. But she just there was nothing that she could have done, and I think we knew we had to have a goal differential because we weren't guaranteed to go through yet because of our tie with Dominican Republic, and we had to score, you know, so I think we ended up winning 10 to zero that last game. Um, and yeah. And you think about that, it's like, okay, what could we 
what could we do in the future? And, and the funny thing about it is we had a girl on the field who was 14 starting against Trinidad. Wow. And, um, yeah, and about half the roster were under 20s. And so if you think about that, exactly what we taught, what I mentioned earlier, the longevity and growing the overall program, like that's exciting. Like that, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm sure you probably want to ask me about the next round of the qualifications. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic, but it, when you think about where we're trying to go, it is about qualifying for the next World Cup. Like that is where we're going. That's the goal. You know, this was something that we were able to, to celebrate and this experience that the senior team is going to get coming in and playing Canada and Mexico and Jamaica here in January and February is going to be an experience that will make this program and these players stronger for when we go to the next international experience to qualify for the World Cup. Like, that's the goal, you know. So, yeah. And exciting. having players that, that young, that already having that experience, right. and then the, the experience that they'll have in January and February, uh, you know, playing playing qualifying. Right. I mean, to get that at that age, then you're you're building the foundation for the future. Yeah, I know. It's, you could tell, I'm sure you could probably tell how excited it makes me. Like, <laughs> I'm like... Okay. And then I'm like behind the scenes. I'm like, okay, we got to, we got to make sure that the buses pick us up on time from the hotel and that we don't like, we have meals that we need. Like there's all these other pieces behind the scenes that, right. that, that, that yeah, we need help with, you know? So uh, it, that's that, going to Trinidad and getting a good result was just a great learning experience for me. And I think we can, we can do that. And I'm, I'm really selfishly happy that we um, are going to be in McAllen. It's, I think it, the city is great. The facilities are great. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to come down to play in Edinburgh, um, which is where the ATD no, Park but is. No, but I've heard so many great beautiful. things about that stadium. It's so new. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. I mean, I can't wait for them to get here to see it. So uh, we're looking to come in and have our camp here in January and get acclimated and, you know, but you know how the weather could be. It's 30 something here today. Next week it could be 80. I mean, so who knows? So we're, we've got to prepare for anything. <laughs> you know, Texas yeah. weather is. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, and so my last, but, my last question for you, yeah. Janae is, uh, you know, what, what do you have on the schedule to help the team prepare for that group stage that'll take place in Edinburgh starting end of January? They'll play Canada, Mexico, Jamaica, all teams that have gone to the world cup, you know, uh, Canada, of course, back to back uh, bronze medalists for the last two Olympics, you know, what, what do you start with? Yeah, I know. Well, for starters, when we play Canada, we hope that it's hot. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just getting to my Canadian friend. Um, no. Okay. So I had a, I had a conference call yesterday. I think you'll, you're, you'll appreciate this. Um, this is what they told me on this conference call with the Federation as we were preparing for the next few weeks. They told me that the people on the Island of St. Kitts have never seen the senior women's team play a home game. Can you believe that? That, so that I, would be like I our, can't, I can, but that I know, but, it, but it's crazy. It's crazy for me to think about. So, because you know they're in the nations league now and a men's team, and they you know they have a professional men's league out there. So, so when I heard that yesterday, we were kind of bouncing around some ideas about coming into. We were thinking about Orlando for coming into camp. We were thinking originally about Houston until we figured out we got here. Um, what we have decided to do is actually do three sort of phases. One is in late November, an uh, island for the local players only, a mini camp for them. 
And then we're looking to bring in a, another opponent from the Caribbean for the early January to do a home match uh, in St. Kitts, which we think will be phenomenal for generating support and interest and uh, playing in front of a home crowd. And that, I mean, I can't even imagine, like, that's what we need. Like we need the people on the Island to be excited about women's soccer, to buy tickets, to follow the team so that some little girl somewhere and some parent of that little girl somewhere says, yes, you can play. And that's, that's who we have in 10 years. I mean, we need, we need that. We need that cultural shift there for the women's game. And so we're going to definitely play a women play an exhibition game at home. And then we're going to come into a camp uh, in, in, well, in Edinburgh uh, early and get a couple scrimmages in that area and finish our camp before we taper into the game. So that's really our plan going forward. That's all, I'm not giving away any more secrets, but um, I'm very excited <laughs> about playing that home game. I mean, I just like can't wait to see. It's going to be like carnival. It's going to be fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we yeah. saw it over the last year with Jamaica actually you know, going full mm-hmm. tilt towards the World Cup and hosting as many home games as they can, which was so yeah. great to see. And, you know, and to really build a, a following. And then, you know, and then during the World Cup, having Usain Bolt tweeting about the Jamaican, yeah. you know, goalkeeper. I mean, that that's how you 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 build a program. Um, so I'm so oh, excited yeah. to 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 get to watch this, you know, unfold. Yay. And yeah, we, um, we need all the fans we can get. So if you're not voting for the U.S. team, vote, maybe vote for us. <laughs> We're in we're in separate brackets, okay. Right. So you can manage this with your viewing and your tw- like everybody, right. okay. <laughs> right. So, um, yes. But then you're going to have to win the group so that you don't end up playing Correct. the USA so in the right. semifinals. Right. So just FYI, that's the goal, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. We're we're going to make it happen. So well, but yes, and- if you're looking for a it's, uh, the underdog team, just consider saying that's the team. That's it. the team. Yep. Well, Janae, yep. thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk and and keep doing what you're doing when it comes to spreading the word about, you know, getting more women coaching and women as coaching educators. I mean, that's, that's I think, part yeah. of that that whole process where it's not just hiring women, but training, mentoring, creating all the pathways. Yeah, absolutely. Educated and experienced women that can do it well. Right. Absolutely. So I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks for letting me talk about the, all the variety of things that I do, but um, I, I'm really looking forward to the qualifications when we come back in in January. So I do mean what I said, like really give us some support. And if you, if you need anything else in the future, let me know. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. The NCAA Division I tournament kicks off this weekend with 64 teams competing in 32 games. Check out KeeperNotes.com for a complete list of games along with viewing information for all games that have made that information available. The tournament wraps up in a few weeks in San Jose, basically the first weekend in December. For more information, go to ncaa.com. There's a bracket, there's a printable bracket, there's live scores, all kinds of great stuff. 
And also this weekend, Australia's W League kicks off its next season. Lots of current and former NWSL players are on W League rosters. Looks like one game per week will be available live and via replay on ESPN+. Plus. So I highly recommend buying that service. It's just $5 a month. Includes lots of other soccer does not include, does not require a cable subscription. I also recommend checking out w-league.com.au for information about the league and about streaming other matches. And then, of course, all Olympic qualifying starts in late January in Texas. And now we know the two groups of four teams. USA will play their group games in Houston against Costa Rica, Panama, and Haiti. Canada will play way down south Texas near the border. They'll face Mexico, Jamaica, and St. Kitts and Nevis. The semifinals and final will be played in LA. Ticketing info should be announced soon. And you can check out concacaf.com for more info. Last, be sure to check out keepernotes.com as I've been adding more content, including galleries of photos from NWSL games, lots of great stat links, and of course, and of course, Woso Nerd type stories. So hope you enjoy those. All right, that's it for this episode. Many thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everyone who shares this with a soccer friend. And as always, many thanks to Sean for putting it all together. But now she's ready.